Hello, welcome to both JP Morgan TV and Global Data Pod. We're breaking new ground here in creating a hybrid uh, session where um, I'm Bruce Kasman, Chief Economist at JP Morgan, and I'm going to be talking with a few of my colleagues about our recently released uh, global outlook, wait for it, and um, how we see not just the um, the baseline view, but some of the uh, uh, scenarios that we think could also be realized in 2023. Uh, let me introduce the, the group here. Uh, I have Joe Lupton, uh, who's usually with me on JP Morgan TV. I have Jahangir Aziz, who is our head of emerging market economics, and Greg Fuzesi, who's our chief Euro-area economist. Uh, so let me get going by just laying out a couple of key elements of the forecast and then delving into what I'm sure will be an interesting conversation. The basic view we have about the US and global economy is that it's bending but not breaking as we end 2022 and looking towards early 23. Uh, basically, a recession does not look imminent here. Uh, yes, we have tightening uh, monetary policy. Yes, we have a financial conditions drag, which is building, um, but we have as well significant adverse supply shocks that are fading fast. Uh, what this we anticipate to deliver is a global economy that grows uh, about a percentage point below trend, but continues to move forward. Lots of divergence, and I want to get into that divergence in a minute. Uh, and importantly, with the supply shocks fading, we get a fairly dramatic uh, fall in inflation. Inflation was running about 10% uh, annualized globally in the first half of this year. By early next year, we think it will have slid down to 3.5%. Uh, um, that story I want to focus on a little bit and the divergences around it. But I also want to emphasize that we're not endorsing a story in which near-term resilience evolves into a medium-term soft landing. Uh, the inflation decline we're looking for, while substantial, we don't anticipate to be complete. Uh, labor markets will remain tight. Inflation psychology will continue to pass through uh, the lagged effects of uh, the inflation spike. And we do think that it's more likely than not that a U.S. recession will take hold sometime between now and the end of 2024. Uh, while that recession seems to us likely as an outcome, needed to unwind uh, the inflation shocks and the shift in the inflation process. We're also arguing that it's not so easy to time this recession. And there are a few different ways it can play out. It can be a, a, a mild US recession in which the rest of the world does okay. It could be a world in which the Fed pauses and then has to restart along with other central banks, the inflation process looking more uh, seriously challenged. And then we get a, a deeper recession, perhaps sometime later and with higher policy rates. And there is, of course, the possibility that we just are being too pessimistic here and that inflation can come down by itself and perhaps deliver a soft landing. Uh, I want to get into some of that conversation, but let's focus first on the shorter term component of the outlook. The idea that we're going to be able to get through the next three to six months without something breaking. And I want to take that perhaps at the start from the uh, more challenging part of that. We have at least two important parts of the world that are looking weak. Uh, China's got COVID and housing sector problems. Europe's got a natural gas problem. 
both of these economies are looking like they're going to be quite soft into the turn of the year. But let's start with you, Greg. Um, how deep is Europe's contraction going to be? And what are you learning as you're looking at the news flow about the risk profile around that? Well, I mean, the, the, the gas situation has been evolving. If you go back a few months, um, there were studies, including from the Bundesbank, which were predicting a complete collapse with GDP falling five and a half percent. Um, and those fears haven't uh, materialized. Uh, the, the region has made much better progress in terms of uh, building uh, gas storage levels, uh, reducing uh, gas usage without hitting uh, output too hard, um, and also putting in, in place uh, various policy supports. Um, so it does look as if uh, we are still going to get a contraction um, because uh, some of the earlier income supports that were generated by the, the exit from, from COVID are no longer helping you on a sequential basis, uh, but the inflation drag is still very intense. So the income hit um, is still something that the economy has to adjust uh, to, and that will lead to lower spending and, and some reduction in output. Um, but we have a peak to trough decline in GDP of 0.6% um, over the Q4, Q1 period. So it's it's mild. It's not only mild, but isn't the incoming data actually giving us a sense that there's, if anything, some upside risk to that forecast? Yeah, I mean, so far, so far, I, we have to say we're speaking in a mode where tomorrow we're going to get the November PMI. So I know that that's why you were so cautious in responding to me, because well, many people will probably listen to that after this. But uh, but thus far, the data has been, if anything, um, surprising us to the upside over the last couple of months, right? That's true. I mean, if you take the October PMI um, and you you do the normal correlations with GDP, you would say that the economy was stagnating at that point. Um, now, you know, you do need probably another two, three point decline in the PMI to align with the Q4 forecast. So um, it is, there is upside risk unless, you know, to, tomorrow delivers a a a much bigger decline that we've seen uh, recently. Let me just sort of fast forward just a touch here, because I want to, we're going to get into this broader outlook story in a minute, but if you can get through the next couple of months without something going badly wrong in Europe, then you start to get that drag fading pretty quickly as we turn through the first few months of 2023. Is that right? And how do we think about the, the profile of the Euro economy, Western European economy, in the first half of the year when we break it up, you know, in terms of the, the, the monthly monthly profile? Yeah, I mean, if, if you get through the next uh, uh, couple of months without the PMI falling a lot further, then, you know, it's likely that you'll get through this winter possibly with no contraction or a very, very small contraction. Um, I would say that the euro area won't be out of the woods completely at that point because, uh, you still face the challenge of having to rebuild your gas storage for the following winter. Um, and there are reports that uh, Russia could turn down the, uh, the, the the gas flows through the Ukraine route, which would make that uh, more challenging still. So you're not out of the, the woods in, in big picture terms, but uh, you are likely to see a, a decline in, in the sequential inflation pressures as you go into Q1 and more importantly into Q2, allowing a near-term bounce. Um, now that we think will be dampened and uh, and made very short by what's happening in the external backdrop, especially the US. Um, but there is a window of opportunity 
um, as you go towards next spring where you could see a bit of a, uh, a, a pickup. Okay, let's let's turn now to China, where I guess the message there doesn't have that that sense of uh, better news in terms of what's been coming in in terms of the the near term flow of information. How worried should we be about China here as we look over the next few months? Jahangir, that's your. I think for, right. I mean, I think for this quarter, you clearly should be worried. I mean, if you look at the impact so far from the resurgence of Omicron. It is going to slow down the economy. We're looking at about 2.4% quarter-on-quarter growth rate. Uh, that's a significant slowdown from third quarter. Uh, and again, you know, the housing market um, continues to bleed. Uh, and because of the, of the COVID-19 uh, policies, uh, the you know, policy stimulus that has been in the pipeline, that's not really hitting the ground. Uh, so, so this quarter is going to be, you know, uh, pretty, pretty slow. Uh, it's nothing. It's not being held by the fact that you know export growth is slowing down as is IP. But I think next quarter we should be getting some. Let lift. me let me if I could stop you here, Jahangir, just to kind of probe a bit. We had a, a we're looking for China to grow two and a half percent this quarter. That's a weak China. But we had a China that contracted eight percent in the second quarter last year, and it didn't roll the global economy over. Like how? How worried are we, you know, because in a sense, obviously China matters for our global aggregate because it's almost 20%. But what we really care about is will China weakness do a lot of damage to other parts of the world? You know, why shouldn't I say, well, it didn't do so last spring and it's therefore a much milder downturn is not going to do it now. Should we, is there spillovers from China that we should worry about? Or should we, let me throw the other side, should we get more positive that it will reinforce fading of supply chain problems, help with energy prices coming down and actually provide something of a boost elsewhere? I think for the second part to happen, which is an actual positive spillover, I think you'll have to wait for some time, uh, probably deep wait into the second half of next year. Yeah, you have to wait for it, uh, you know, just like your title of your uh, Outlook piece. Um, but for now, I think the spillover has been limited largely because most of the uh, dynamics has been driven by consumption and service side. Uh, that is not where China is linked to the rest of the world. I'm not saying that service demand does not have manufacturing components attached to it, but that's not really the big driver. It's infrastructure, it is manufacturing, which is where the big driver uh, connections are with the rest of the world. Uh, so I think that the slowdown is having some impact in ASEAN economies, which are connected to China's consumption. Uh, but for the rest of the world, it is just that China has slowed down for the last two years. That's what's really weighing down on, let's say, commodity prices in general. I think it's a it's a big problem for, for China, right? Because it also accelerates the relocation of production elsewhere. I mean, this is a structural uh, dynamic that's taking place. COVID probably just accelerates that to, to some extent. I, I just don't see just if we're just focusing on China, I don't see how China gets out of this. I mean, we, we've been saying since the initial rebound that any reopening is going to is just going to open the floodgates for more more COVID. And, and frankly, I 
kind of felt like our team was pushing back against that and everything was going to be okay but here we are and we're we're seeing another slowdown we continue we have to slash the growth rates yet again we have a bounce back in the first quarter as 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 you know uh, but then things slow back down again, and it's uh, it's a pretty grim picture for China over the course of all of next year. So, I mean, I think you're mixing up too many things over here. So there is a relocation story that is playing out, but really in the data, we don't really see that. You see some relocation that has taken place since 2018 in Vietnam a little bit, in, in Korea a little bit, in Mexico a little bit. But let's, let's remember that China last year had FDI of $173 billion, its highest And China's, China's and share of exports is up since the pandemic started by a decent chunk. And, and, but that's, that's, Joe will probably say, well, that's because of PPE-related uh, exports. Yeah. And that's coming down. So I know, I know exactly where Joe is going with yeah. this story. But I think in terms, in terms of the relocation bit, I think there's a lot being written about it, a lot being talked about it but very little to show on the ground. Uh, I'm not saying it won't happen. It will probably happen, but it'll take a much longer time to happen. But going back to your second question, which is that you know it's going to be a pretty grim picture for China. I think it will be a pretty grim picture for China till China manages to get some form of critical natural immunity. Exactly. That's essentially yep. where the problem is. Yep. And, yep. And, and we expect China to liberalize its pandemic policy probably after the March NPC meeting, uh, and it'll take at least you know six months for that natural immunity to but start we have even to remember building. That up. natural immunity is not like they're they're sitting on this because they they don't understand this. They're sitting on it because they know to get that is also going to come alongside what as much as two three million deaths. Uh, exactly, and that's essentially where the political problem starts when you start off by saying that. You know, we have been successful because our debts are the least in the world. I think that's where all of this, all of this originates. But I think that once we get over that, and let's say we do get over that day by the fourth quarter of 2023, then I think that you will get at least about, I would say, four to six quarters of pretty strong growth because there is an enormous amount of pent-up demand that's sitting there in China. And you don't really require massive re- thing rejigging of policies you need some rejigging of policies but not massive rejigging of policies right. uh, so i'm a bit more optimistic than you are uh, of what happens i think we have to uh, quote unquote wait for it uh, and i think that you know the world, if the world is patient my guess is that sometime around late 23 you are going to get a, a china recovery and bruce going back to your quest point about global 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 economy if at that point in time, U.S. is going to recession, China actually providing the counterbalance will be an extremely important driver. Let's pivot a little bit here. Um, and uh, I don't want to get into where we're going to be at the end of 23 here. I want to talk about the U.S. for a minute. And I want to focus on two things here. Uh, one is that whatever China's growth forecast is doing here, it is going to be contributing to the disinflationary impulse, unless we want to argue there's a a major supply um, disruption there. And let's not go down that road in this conversation. I just want maybe you, Joe, to take us to the uh, path that gets us to um, um, a Fed pause here in a world in which the inflation drop we are arguing is encouraging the Fed to moderate. 
its policy hikes, but it's also providing a, a boost to the consumer here, which we're starting to see as we get the data for the early part of the fourth quarter. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, if you want to call it a pivot or whatever, this pause that people are looking for, um, yeah, it it's going to come. But the first thing I would point out is it's not an, an end to the monetary tightening we're in because policy rates are going to end at upwards of 5%. That's very tight. Financial conditions are going to be very tight. What gets them to stop is a combination of things. One is they're going to see... Uh, it, it most importantly, they're going to see evidence that inflation at least is starting the journey back down. The headline, of course, was easy. Going from 10 to 5 was easy. Getting to 5 to 2 is the hard part. Th that 5 to 2, they got kind of a little bit of a tease of that in October, and they're hopefully going to see some more evidence that that journey has begun. So you're going to get that. You're going to get some sense that the economy is is resilient, but also slowing, and a labor market that the is going from a boil down to a simmer, unemployment rate is starting to rise up, and they're going to look around. And by the time they get to March, they do that last hike of 25, they're going to see the macro conditions starting to, to, to moderate, and they're going to say, we're at 5%, which is super tight, and they're going to be at that position Powell said they were going to be at way back in May, where they can stop and look around to see if this is enough. And that's going to carry them into the second half of next year, where I think well, it let's, let's, does get interesting. And there's a number of scenarios yeah, to consider let's, there. Let's sort of stop there, because I think if we, it by, it's by no means assured that the Fed does deliver that, especially, and again, I want to emphasize that uh, it does look like the U.S. economy is tracking somewhere 2 to 3% GDP growth this quarter. Um, but if we... If we do, if we do get there, then that's where the scenarios of what happens. Um, so we're we're going to move away from the near-term recession risk, assuming that even with China's significant downshift, that we have enough support coming partly from the U.S. consumer to avoid recession in the near term. We're going to take on board the idea that inflation will come down enough to get the Fed to pause, it'll be a hawkish pause almost certainly, but it will be a pause if we're right. And then let's talk about what happens from there. There's a number of different things to consider. One is the point you made a minute ago, Joe, is that the Fed pausing is by no means the end of the drag from tight financial conditions. Um, that is certainly uh, building and given the traditional transmission lags, we'll probably continue to build through the end of 23. That becomes a very central part uh, to our U.S. economists' view that we slide into recession in the second half of the of the year. However, just for a moment, let's let's sort of think about the rest of the world. I mean, one of the points you've been hitting on, Jahangir, is that that may be an encouragement for EM central banks to to start thinking about easing prematurely. Uh, what's the um, what's the storyline there? So I think if you, I mean, it's, if you look at the disinflation that is ongoing, I mean, it's like the U.S. right now. There's a very strong monthly disinflation going. I think in the first quarter of 22, you will see that taking root. Uh, so if I take out China, where there is no inflation, and I take out uh, Turkey, where inflation is 80%, so if I take out the two 
uh, extremes, uh, then uh, emerging market inflation will probably go from 8% average in the second half of 22 uh, to around to below 5% uh, by the first quarter of 23. But then after that, it sort of slows down. And, you know, all the transitory factors, etc., the food inflation, the energy inflation, those big drivers go away, and then you're left with struggling with a pretty slow disinflation. But if you look at that period of time where, let's say, the Fed actually comes to a pause after the first quarter of 23, which is what Mike's call is, let's say 5%, you have had this disinflation, and growth is slowing down in emerging markets, like elsewhere in the world. We are going to get a subpar growth in, uh, 2020, uh, in 2023. The temptation at that point in time for central banks and probably urged a lot by the market, because the market is going to price in pretty serious easing, is to start cutting and cutting deep. And I think that's where the concern is, that not many of the uh, emerging markets do have the policy space to cut. Uh, some of them do have. You know, some of them have actually raised rates significantly. In many cases, you have significant amount of private savings as a cushion, but the vast majority of emerging markets have not done so as yet. And in addition to that, the private savings buffer has dwindled down. So at that point in time, if they cut and cut deeply, my fear is that we are now going to see financial stability as a problem because the Fed isn't really, you know, uh, easing at that point in time. It is still holding at five. But let's, uh, let's uh, talk so, about the U.S. now again, because um, the forecast does have the weight of the Fed going to five um, alongside what we've seen in terms of the significant rise in mortgage rates, the significant fall rise in the dollar, doing enough to tip us into a recession. Joe, where is that going to come from? What's going to drive the behavior that pushes the U.S. into, into recession? I mean, you're kind of baiting me, right? Because we've been debating this uh, for for the for a while now, and I, I think that's a really interesting question in the sense that you know typically you would look for sharp increases in interest rates and and financial conditions to 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 drive a, a correction in your interest sensitives, which is primarily usually the housing sector. And that is happening, but it's already happened a lot this year. It's going to continue to happen, but at a less of a pace next year. And by the time you get to the point of the end of next year, where we think the U.S. finally slips into this recession, I would think the housing sector's largely done a significant adjustment. So then your question, well, what drives it? We keep talking about the health of balance sheets. Uh, you know, that's really not, there aren't these macro imbalances to worry about. So again, what drives a recession? I think that the angle here is really through uh, the, the, the margin story, which is corporate profitability. And I think the, the, the important thing to recognize here is that while inflation is coming down, we actually think wages are going to stay a bit stickier. And if you've got wage inflation, which maybe is moderating some, uh, but not enough, and pricing inflation is coming down, your margins start to move lower and lower. Productivity is a key wild card. It's actually been very weak this year, which is which has uh, already been pulling the margin down. But uh, you know, if that bails us out next year, great. Maybe we don't even have a recession. I think that's part of the soft landing story. But in our scenario of soft landing, or excuse me, of, of a mild recession, it's really a, a story that 
those margins come under pressure. You break the back of the corporate sector and they start cutting spending. They start laying workers off. And then that well, let me, spirals let me stop into you there because I, I do think that is a key component of the story, which is if you're going to get a recession in the U.S., that's going to have to happen. And you you can argue that the margin compression may already be starting. Uh, you can argue that the 5% policy rate and all of its transmission is going to be enough. You can argue in some ways, part of what Jahangir is hinting at is there might be some global financial stress point, either through policy mistakes or elsewhere that can come. Those are all possible and those are all paths to get us to the recession, to our baseline uh, forecast. But I think part of the story here is that um, the um, the margin compression is just started. The margins are very high. Corporates did not, in the U.S. at least, uh, build a lot of uh, new capital equipment uh, relative to what they were earning for the last number of years. Uh, we're sitting in a world in which uh, balance sheets from a leverage point of view is pretty light. It's not as easy to call what level of policy rates or what timing of margin compression is going to deliver that. And I think that's a very important point here. Um, that the timing of this, the the mechanism to get there, is not classically going to be determined by only five percent policy rates or even six percent policy rates, but it's that interaction to what actually drives uh, businesses to cut back. And obviously, there's part of it which is the natural um, evolution in a deteriorating way. Um, but I think uh, in addition, there is the issue of possibly a shock hitting the system. But let's well, let's leave shocks aside because we, we can't forecast those. But I think what you raise is a very interesting point because we laid out these scenarios in in the outlook and we have kind of this this scary scenario of the Fed has to kind of, uh, you know, doesn't see enough uh, disinflation ends up having to hike aggressively, uh, driving a much after, harder after a landing. After and then a there's pause. a soft landing and, and then there's a soft landing scenario. Right. Both of those can be viewed through the lens of this margin story. Right. The scenario that you're the, that you're kind of a bit more worried about and maybe put more weight on is the idea that maybe pricing power doesn't come down or the way in which corporates react to the margin compression is actually by pushing rates up higher or maybe the lack of imbalance or pushing uh, pricing up higher and the Fed has to then react by pushing rates up higher. That's exacerbated by the fact that you don't have these imbalances. And so the corporate is kind of feeling fairly healthy. The The soft landing story is that hey, you know, the margins are elevated right now, that corporates can withstand some margin compression and you get this Goldilocks scenario. Maybe you also get wages coming down. That protects you a little bit as well. And you get this Goldilocks scenario where the Fed does uh, maybe even start easing a little bit and you get, you know, all the pricing complex move back down, assuming there's a lot of these transitory forces uh, in place. I personally would think, and I, I think you do too, although we put different weights on these, that the bookends in our, in these scenarios are probably the one of those is the more likely scenario than even our baseline is. This baseline world of kind of you know every you know you just kind of falling into a mild recession. It's it's a little hard to to tell that given the macro backdrop without these macro well, I think the way imbalances I just put that it, we've Joe, seen before. There's, there's a sea of possibilities here. Many of them do get you a recession, but they don't, it's not easy to get confident as to how the path, either timing or the rates path is. Uh, I would have liked to have 
pushed on to Greg right now, but apparently he's run out of storage. So anything he says won't make it to our uh, our upload here. So um, you know, I, I I'm gonna have to. You know, just, we're running out of gas and storage in your. We room. just had a, an energy <laughs> crisis. I think I'm oh, back. back. So I've cleared some storage. Uh, so tell me what you think in terms of the euro area outlook. If we get through the next two or three months, what do you see as the biggest risk ahead? You have the ECB stopping at two and a half. Is that uh, is that the risk that alongside what we've been talking about, the concern that the Fed may have to do more? That the ECB does more, or are you concerned that we've done enough damage through this uh, winter um, that the euro might just slide down by itself? No, I, I mean I think this winter should be okay. I, I mean we we will see some increases in un, in unemployment um, if we get the kind of GDP forecast that we have, but we are going into this with very high levels of uh, vacancies uh, and labour shortages. Um, so I, I think the, the the labor market shakeout will be quite quite modest. I think the to me the big risk is really, in some sense, what you've talked about, which is what is the underlying inflation process and what's the landing zone over the medium term, because that will determine uh, how much damage, in some sense, needs to be done uh, to the labor market to bring inflation all the way back down to two percent. Now the relative, now how you achieve that, I think. To some extent, it will be the ECB. To some extent, it will be uh, external help through first the energy recession, then US recession. If you don't get either of those, obviously the ECB has to do more. So in terms of how you get there, there are different paths. But the ultimate question is, you know, what is the landing zone on inflation? And I think that is still very hard to So let to me, tell. we're going to try inclination brief here, is because, but I want to just hit risks here. Uh, first from Jahangir and then from Joe, but on Jahangir's side, maybe in EM now, give me country perspective. Which countries do you feel, in the context of what you were saying earlier, are the ones we should be most uh, concerned about? Oh, the, the countries that don't have where private savings have fallen, which is hasn't really raised rates to compensate for risk, and I would put a bunch of Asian economies uh, led by India, uh, Philippines. Uh, but I will also include Indonesia in that category, but not fully in that category. Uh, the C among the C uh, Central European economies, uh, apart from Czech Republic, all three of them uh, fall into that category. I think on the other end, I would say South Africa, Brazil, um, you know, these two economies and Israel for, for our economies where I think are much more resilient than these uh, than, than the ones that haven't done enough. But just in terms of risk, I think exactly what Greg said and you know Joe and you were talking about, that you know if half in the middle of the next year we realize that the Fed or ECB hasn't done enough, and in the previous three months, uh, emerging market economies have cut rates because they think that things are going fine, I think that's when emerging markets will be in serious trouble. So let me turn to you and maybe we'll 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 end it here joe you've been the biggest proponent of soft landing we've put it about a 20 percent probability of that so i'll give you the opportunity to uh to give us your 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 thoughts on that your if you want to if you want to uh argue for it um go ahead well 
look, I, I think partly I argue it just because part of our job is to take the other side of what, what pe other people are arguing and kind of show what, where the risks are. Uh, I do think maybe it's a little bit higher than what we put in our piece of 20%. Maybe I'd put it closer to, to 30%. The idea is very is very simple, right? This notion that you know inflation is elevated and the only way to get it down is to uh generate a very you know or some type of material downturn and deterioration in the labor market that's really hanging on to our to our general orthodox economic theories but it was only just 4 years ago before those economic theories were being severely questioned because we didn't really understand why the phillips curve wasn't working now all of a sudden we're everyone's going full force into these the 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 traditional Phillips curve kind of working. The alternative is just hey, we don't really know a lot about inflation. We we know what we do know is there are a lot of transitory forces that push prices up. We can point to all of them. There's a whole suite of forces that are rolling off right now, namely things like used auto prices, uh, it's, uh, you know, I leave aside energy and, and food, which are coming off. You got medical services, housing is going to be rolling over. And so you can, the, the direction of travel for inflation is is definitely down. And we could be here and even in six months, be looking at inflation. And it's it's kind of already back to central bank targets in a world where policy is still very tight. Growth has kind of slowed a, a fair bit. And policymakers could even start easing as we move through the second half of the year. Again, that's not my that's not my baseline, but I think as a soft landing scenario, it's not a hard one to tell. People use the immaculate disinflation. I actually think that's disingenuous. It's it's just not that hard to tell. We may it may not happen, but it's an easy one to 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 envision. Okay, so I think we'll finish up there, Bruce. Can, can I just jump in there? Because one thing we didn't talk about at all is is we, we kind of take the near term as given that we don't fall into recession. If we're just talking about risk and we really don't. This is a forecast where we really have a lot of uncertainties. Uh, you know, the near term actually could, uh, you know, the odds of us something breaking right now are are not as low as maybe what we're letting on in the piece. So, something that really worries me and I know you is seeing those lending standards, which have really spiked in a way that would tend to, that you only see that ahead of a recession. And so the financial conditions, the tightening that we've seen, the deep downturn in the housing market, that may, maybe we are going to see something break here in the next couple of months. So I don't want to sound too, too confident that, hey, we know we're not going to have a recession. Uh, again, we want to emphasize, uh, even with what we just discussed, that the global economy is most likely going to stay resilient here for a while. Uh, but then we think the case for tightening financial conditions uh, to be a factor for a recession becomes pretty strong. Um, but the path to getting there, both on rates and the level in which uh, uh, any US potential recession spills over to the global economy, you know, remains uncertain here. So thanks everybody, uh, and hope that everyone has a happy holiday and that we can continue this conversation both on JP Morgan TV and Global Data Pod.